Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guests today are Elizabeth Johnston and Leah Olson from Sarah Lawrence College. Their new book out is The Feeling Brain, The Biology and Psychology of Emotions. As they write in their introduction, our emotions are often frustrating and elusive. We frequently ask ourselves searching questions about them. Why am I feeling the way I am? What exactly am I feeling? Why are my emotions so unknowable to me? Why do emotions have such power to direct my life? How could I change the way I feel? They note that after years of neglect by both mainstream biology and psychology, the study of neuroscience of emotions is now burgeoning. And they say that uh, their attempt in this book is to ask a very big question, what is an emotion? Elizabeth Johnston uh, specializes in child development, perception, sensory motor integration. She's professor of psychology at uh, Sarah Lawrence uh, College. Welcome to the program. Hi. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. We welcome in as well Leah Olson, who uh, is Professor of Biology at Sarah Lawrence. She specializes in neurobiology of circadian rhythms, learning, and memory. Welcome to you. Thank you. And uh, the two of you, I understand, teach a class uh, together on on this subject. Um, Yes. Actually, the the course started when we both noticed uh, an increase in, in papers coming out on emotions, um, a topic that students were often interested in, and it was frustrating that there was little done on it. And over a couple of years, our folder grew so large, we realized that we could, in fact, teach a course on it. I was going to ask you how this, how this got started. So this, this was an impetus from, from students. They seem to be interested in this. Uh, um, I think Leah emailed me one day asking about a paper that had come out, and we started talking about the increase in uh, the number of papers about emotion um, that we were seeing and realized we had taught a course together before about the senses, but this was um, a chance to look at this new field of affective neuroscience. Um, And uh, we we started putting things together and um, realized that the students would be very interested. We teach in a college where they use a small seminar system, so it's a very intimate form of teaching. We would have no more than um, 15 to 20 students in a class, and then we also meet with the students individually for conference meetings um, to develop research papers. So we knew that we'd be developing the course in the context of a lot of pressing questions, um, and we designed it around that question, what is an emotion? Hmm. One of the things that really struck me, um, you say, I can't remember how exactly you phrase it in the book, that we have, we're evolved, or I guess we're, de- we're designed to read the smallest of, of emotional signs in the person we're talking to, and yet most of us, I guess, have trouble reading our own emotions. Yeah, it, it, it is very strange that, um, you know, one, one aspect, you know, we think we talk about emotions as being adaptive, that they definitely evolved for a function. Um, identifying that exact function is, is an ongoing challenge. But clearly one of the uh, roles of emotional expression um, is communication, right? So we're communicating aspects about our feelings to the other person as we talk, often though we try to hide it as much as we can. And so as an onlooker, we're really trying to detect, you know, what we can about what might be the underlying emotional state of the individual we're talking to. Right. What, what are the, so the, the central question, what is an emotion? And as you say, that it gets very complicated. You have a bunch of sub-questions. Right. Yes. 
Yeah, it generates a number of other questions, that's right. Very interesting questions, but I wonder before we jump in, what is there personal motivation here? Do you, I mean, this is interesting, obviously, to you as, you know, as, <laughs> as scientists. Absolutely. Um, there's always personal motivation, I think, for any course of study. Um, for me, I think um, I've always been a fairly anxious person, and that's one of the things I was really interested in investigating, how that had been looked at scientifically and ways of understanding what was happening in the brain as a result of anxiety. Hmm. Um, and for me, probably, as a biologist, um, and especially a biologist who, who specializes in, in neuroscience, from the time I was a, uh, a graduate student, I was really puzzled at some areas of neuroscience which really weren't investigated very significantly, uh, one of those being emotion and the other being consciousness. Um, and those are areas that have just in the last 20 or 30 years started to be taken up by mainstream neuroscientists. So I think a lot of us who sort of grew up in the field are, are just fascinated that, that people are now beginning to study these, these otherwise you know, fairly neglected areas. So as we go along, we'll do it. Uh, investigate very interesting questions. Is it possible to have an emotion without a bodily response? Uh, what about uh, what about memory and uh, and emotion? And, and, and can you co- control your emotions? We'll talk about that. That's a very interesting okay. uh, question. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, tell me about William James. Very influential paper. Sort of you know kicked off this discussion in what eighteen sixties, eighteen hundred somewhere. 1884, he published that paper, that's right, yeah. That's interesting because that's actually the first paper that we had our students read at the beginning of the course, but prior to that, we asked them to um, write on the topic of what is an emotion before they read James's paper. We were interested to see um, what kind of uh, changes that would induce in how they understood emotions after reading James's paper. they were all very surprised at how modern this 1884 paper seemed to them. Um, And it's a very strongly argued piece where James is essentially arguing that the um, bodily, the perception of the bodily feelings is in fact emotion, that bodily feelings are so integral to emotion that without them, there's no such thing that that feeling is, indeed carried through these bodily signals, our perception of the bodily signals. We thought we might actually read a little piece. Oh, um, oh okay, certainly. Okay, yeah. connection with that. Yeah. Would that be, That'd be a great. good point to do this? Yeah, okay. So, in his essay, James, like Darwin, focused on emotional expression, and he was especially interested in the changes occurring within the body during emotional expression. Philosophers and scientists had long shared a central assumption about the relationship between emotional experience or feelings and emotional expression. It seemed intuitively straightforward. An emotional stimulus provokes an emotional feeling such as fear, and the emotional experience then initiates the bodily changes we commonly associate with emotion. This is how most of us understand the relationship between our feelings and our emotional expressions. We cry because we feel sad, and when we observe someone else crying, we assume that their tears are caused by feelings of sadness. In what is an emotion, James turned this everyday and widely accepted notion on its head. To illustrate his counterintuitive model, James recounted his now famous bear example. Our common sense view of the order of events is that we see a bear, 
feel frightened and then run. James argued instead that we feel afraid of the bear because we tremble. He inserted bodily changes between the eliciting stimulus and the emotion. My thesis, on the contrary, is that the bodily changes follow directly the perception of the exciting facts, and that our feeling of the same changes as they occur is the emotion. That's a quote from James there. Contrary to our everyday experience, James not only insisted that we feel sorry because we cry, angry because we strike, afraid because we tremble, but he claimed that without the bodily manifestations, we have no emotion. Yeah, that's that's pretty radical, even even now. It is. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's counterintuitive to me. You know, the, the, the fact that, you know, I'm not afraid or uh, my heart is pounding because I'm afraid when James is saying... Um, I'm afraid because my heart is pounding. It seems, yeah, he's seems saying that the feeling that you're is feeling, okay, the awareness of, yeah. of the body. So he's actually equating the term feeling with emotion, where yeah. feeling is referring to that awareness of it. Now I can't. I, I was uh, you know reading through the book and I encountered um, one of you had a, has had a bear encounter. No, <laughs> an imagined bear encounter. Oh, an imagined bear encounter. Okay. Yeah. Well, so tell, that, tell me I about told that. that story actually um, to to illustrate how powerful imagination is and uh, thoughts and memories in evoking emotions um, as opposed to actual scary stimuli in the world. <laughs> so um, I tell the story of arriving at um, at the woods, the entrance to the woods to walk my dog and meeting another dog walker who tells me he's sure that there's a bear in the woods. Um and I decide to go in and walk my dog anyway, but the whole time I'm thinking about the emotion of fear and how I'm generating all of these responses to it. So my senses were really heightened, and uh, you know, I was watching out for any sound, any movement in the periphery that this bear might appear, because actually bears have been sighted in in the woods around there. So, oh. um, so that, that... I didn't actually, only in my imagination... Yeah, that, but that illustrates that you know the power of, of imagination. You just heard about the bear might be there, and and you That's had the right. response. Yeah, I guess That's that you can right. correlate that to you know. I think all of us have had the experience of having a, a vivid dream, waking up in a cold sweat. Ah, uh, yes, the bodily responses. Yes. Right. yes. And actually, that's a that's an issue that we take some time to develop in the book because the early the early workers in trying to understand the brain uh, role of emotion, um, for the most part, we're using external stimuli like the bear, right? Sort of assuming that there's a stimulus in the environment that provokes the um, uh, an intense emotion such as fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, of course, you know, your brain is very capable of initiating fear on its own, which is what we were trying to po- uh, point out with that story. And understanding how the, the, our own ideas or our own imagination and thoughts can stimulate emotions is something that um, was begun to look at much later on in, in brain sciences. Mm-hmm. I wonder, just uh, looping back, so you have your students write their idea of what is an emotion, then you have them read the James yeah. paper. So what do they what do they generally say? What are what are some themes? What what are their ideas before you take yeah. them into the science? Well, certainly the idea of their body is something that comes out significantly. They they uh, many of them immediately say it's something about feeling. Right, so I think most people do locate emotions in the body, 
um, to an extent because you can't have an emotion without feeling something. Um, so that is one response that does that does come out. Right. Yeah, they also talk about um, what the stimulus is, what triggers emotion in them, um, and the... Um, they know that they're doing it in the context of a course on uh, biology and psychology, so they are thinking about it in those terms. They're trying to relate the idea of emotion to uh, physiological systems, um, to survival mechanisms. But they also talk about the, you know, the, the that it's emotion is something that just happens, right? And once it happens, you have a very difficult time controlling it. So a number of them talk about it sort of as a reflex in a way that something happens and you have an emotion. And that's a theme that we continue to work with throughout the class as well. Um, uh, A piece that doesn't come out, and this is something we spend time with over the course, is that um, much of the work by modern researchers, or at least one of the major researchers that we spend time talking about in the book, insists that emotions are unconscious. Hmm, unconscious. Right. And, of course, that's very different from anything any of our students uh, talked about in their initial papers. Yeah. Yeah, they're always talking about their awareness of it, their understanding of it. And so, and we actually spend a lot of time in the course looking at some animal work on fear conditioning um, by Joseph Ledoux, who's at NYU, um, who's written a book called The Emotional Brain. Um, And uh, we, we focus a lot on that, uh, quantification of the response mm. early on, at least, and this kind of immediate um, response to fear-invoking stimuli that are very important to avoid um, to, to deal with. Let's take a break. Uh, and we'll, when we come back, I want to talk about Paladu. This is, uh, you know, it occurred to me as I was going into this that uh, what emotion would you study? You probably study strong emotions, right? And so Paula Du chose fear, which is we all we all know fear, and it's a very strong emotion. I want to talk a little bit about that. Talk about uh, get into talking about PTSD, and interesting the interaction of uh, of uh, emotion with memory, and uh, study of pain as well. Um, and we'll talk about uh, is it Antonio Damasio? Yes, Antonio Damasio. Damasio, in a very interesting couple of cases, and and as often happens with studying the brain, uh, unfortunately, some of the best uh, specimens are are people who had unfortunate, you know, rebar through their brain and and such, but we'll talk about that uh, following the break. Diana Nyad has never forgotten something her father told her many, many years ago. The day I turned five, he said, look in the dictionary, definition, Nyad. Woman, champion, swimmer. I became a swimmer, but that's not the word I heard. I heard the word champion. The making of a champion, next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Congratulations to Dr. Anthony Peacock, head of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Science Political Science Department, for being named to the National Advisory Board of the Coalition of Freedom. As part of the coalition, Peacock will contribute to the initiative to make the United States Constitution more accessible and better understood and appreciated. UPR congratulates Dr. Anthony Peacock for being named to the National Advisory Board of the Coalition of Freedom.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, talking with Elizabeth Johnston and Leah Olson. They uh, teach at Sarah Lawrence College. They teach a class together on emotion. And they've written a book now, The Feeling Brain, The Biology and Psychology of Emotions. We're talking about it today. Our emotions are often frustrating and elusive, they write. We frequently ask ourselves, why am I feeling the way I am? What exactly am I feeling? Why are my emotions so unknowable to me? There is a burgeoning uh, new field of study, affective neuroscience, and uh, they're tackling this book, the, the big question, what is an emotion? You're welcome to join us in the program at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. So before we jump into uh, Ledoux's research uh, on, on fear, I wondered going into this, there's, there's so many emotions and we're all familiar with them. You know, it's every day, every hour, you go through a range of, of emotions. What's most being studied? You, you talk about fear. Uh, there's, you know, there's a chapter on pain. Um, these seem intense emotions, I guess, makes it easier to study. Yes, there's also a lot of focus on disgust um, in uh, strong emotional reactions. So um, Paul Ekman uh, outlined several basic emotions like sadness, happiness, anger, fear, surprise, disgust. Um, And earlier on in the study of the emotional brain, those tended to be focused on. um, But with the advent of social neuroscience, there's more focus now on studies of more social emotions like empathy also. Mm. Um, And the pain and empathy studies are connected. So Ledoux made a very conscious choice to focus on fear because he had a real, he developed a really good model of the processing of fear conditioning and was able to trace through the brain um, exactly where that was going on and ended up focusing on this small subcortical structure called the amygdala um, that gets its name from almond because of its shape. It's actually a collection of dif- different sub cortical nuclei, um, and he was able to really get specific about the location of fear conditioning in studies with rats. Mm. What, what would, <laughs> I'm interested in the mechanics here, what, <laughs> what, what were they afraid of? What did it make him afraid of? What? Um, the, uh, the, the paradigm is really a classical conditioning paradigm. They give the rat an auditory tone, which of course is nothing frightening about, but at the same time they provide, they give it a shock. So very quickly the rat learns to um, anticipate the shock. When it hears a bell, it's afraid. And its uh, fear response is very stereotyped. It freezes, its heart rate changes, and so forth. And so those changes are very measurable, and that's what allowed Ledoux to, um, to really advance is that he had a very specific way of measuring something we would call an emotion, um, this, in this case fear. And I believe he, uh, he, he, there are a couple of responses. There's an immediate response, if I remember this correctly, and then there's a, yeah. a subsequent response. That's right. What he discovered um, is that he wanted, so he wanted to understand the fear pathway so, uh, into the brain. So began looking for where in the brain um, the, fear, the learned fear actually occurred. And he assumed initially that it would be in the auditory cortex, part of what we call neocortex, that um, we typically assume most information is analyzed um, through. But when he destroyed the auditory cortex, 
the rat continued to be afraid. And in fact, he learned that they could even learn to be afraid of the shock without an auditory cortex. So that was initially very puzzling, but later um, he discovered that, in fact, as the auditory stimulus enters the brain, it splits into two streams, one of which goes to the auditory cortex, where it can be analyzed in a very uh, specific way, very carefully. The other input goes immediately to the amygdala, and it's there that the actual fear learning is occurring. The amygdala is connected up to the fear response systems, Right, um, and so prov- it is what provides that immediate reaction. That oh my God, I feel, see a, a frightful stimulus, or I hear a frightful stimulus. On the uh, the input going to the auditory cortex, however, is still being analyzed, and it also will come to the amygdala. And what it can do is, uh, well, uh, Ledoux has a, his now a well-known or relatively famous example to describe the difference between the input that goes directly to the amygdala versus the one that goes to the auditory cortex. He calls the one to the amygdala the low road and the one to the auditory cortex the high road. Um, so he asks the reader to imagine, he's sort of taking a, a page off of James' book here, asks the reader to Um, imagine walking in the woods and stepping on a stick, but initially thinking that that stick is a snake, Um, something we've probably all done, right? Your immediate reaction is to jump back, um, but then you look and you see that it's not a stake. It's a a stick. So it's that uh, perception that it's not a snake, it's a stick, I don't have to be afraid, that is coming from the high road through the auditory cortex. So it takes longer, right? It could correct the problem once you've made a mistake in identifying the stick as a snake, uh, but it doesn't occur as quickly. So, you know, we jump and then we look and say, there's nothing to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. And some of this, uh, you know, you could you could trace it back over evolution that uh, that immediate response is, is developed to, to keep us safe. That's right. Um, the, the, it's often described as a smoke detector principle, right? You'd rather be safe than sorry, mm-hmm. right? And there's, a, there's something called fear extinction. Is that, is that that second yes. pathway? No, that's yeah. a separate something pathway. Different. So, okay. um, in fact, um, studies of extinction found that um, that's a separate learning. So extinction is simply to um, present the stimulus without the shock, and so the, the animal gets used to the idea that, um, in fact, this, this tone no longer predicts um, the shock to the, to the tail or to the foot. And um, extinction is um, actually a new form of learning, and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, an area um, at the base of the front of the brain, is thought to be important for that kind of learning. And one of the ideas that, that um, Ludu talked about is that the original fear conditioning in the amygdala is still there and is basically overlaid with the new learning of extinction, but it can easily reassert itself when another reminder comes along oh. of the, the fear-invoking stimulus. If you just joined us, we're talking about The Feeling Brain. That's the title of a new book out from Elizabeth Johnston and Leah Olson. They teach at Sarah Lawrence College. You're welcome to join us here at 1-800-826-1495. UPRAxis at gmail.com is our email, and you can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. So as you say, uh, one of the, I guess, promising uses for all of this research mm-hmm. uh, is 
I guess, establishing baselines for, so you say most psychiatric disorders include disturbances of the emotions, right. especially true in, in yeah. majority depression and anxiety. And, and so if you can figure out exactly what's going on with quote unquote normal emotion, then, then you can maybe have more targeted treatments for, for disorders. Yes, that's right. So things like structures like the amygdala are very important in anxiety disorders. So one of the ideas is that the amygdala is overactive, um, too easily triggered by fear-invoking stimuli and not easily enough extinguished. That would be a, um, a model of um, how anxiety disorders are formed on the basis of an adaptive fear conditioning mechanism, which you need to learn to be afraid of things. So, you know, we talk about a case um, of a patient SM in the book whose amygdala is actually damaged by a disease process, a, um, a progressive disease process. It means by the time she was about um, 10 years old that um, she effectively lost um, functioning of her amygdala and she lacks fear. So she lacks a kind of fear of dangerous situations. She was attacked in a park one night and returned to the same park the very next day um, with, with no fear, no concern for her safety. Figured by the place, she, she experienced a lot of violent encounters, including almost being killed by her former husband. Um, she has no sense of personal space. So the researchers did a study um, looking at how close they could um, get to people in order to um, see when they would become uncomfortable, break that bubble around yourself, the very personal space bubble. Um, and SM just didn't have one. They could get really, really close um, to her and the experimenters would be an excruciating state of embarrassment, but SM would not feel any kind of discomfort. We actually did a, um, a version of that as a demonstration in our class where uh, the students were looking at how close they could get to each other, still looking at each other's eyes, and found it very, very uncomfortable at a certain point. But that, that kind of fear and, and um, self-protection was really not there for SM without functioning. Amygdala. By the way, it sounds like a fun class. I, I'm tempted to come take it. Uh, <laughs> all all yeah. these different experiments that we do on each other. Uh, I wonder, uh, I'm skipping ahead now to near the end of the book, but uh, bring it in here. Um, can we control our emotions? Can we take this this learning and, and control our emotions? I think that's what we would hope, isn't it? That, or, or understand yeah. and control them. Yeah, and that's a lot of the work is on emotional regulation, how you control your emotions. Um, a researcher at Stanford, James Gross, is the, one of the big figures in this field, and we spend a lot of time on the work of him and his colleagues um, in uh, the 11th chapter of the book. Um, and one of the things that is notable about that literature is that there are many, many ways to regulate emotions. So he um, breaks the um, process of emotion generation into several stages, and um, then talks about how the different um, strategies for emotion regulation can interact. So you can, um, first of all, choose a situation um, in terms of how, how much emotion it's going to generate. You can avoid situations that are going to trigger really uh, aversive emotions, or you can modify the situation. You can um, make it more comfortable by making certain choices about it, or you can use your attention, you can distract yourself 
something is distressing. Um, and that is often used by young children. So there, we talk about the very famous um, marshmallow study of Walter Michel, mm-hmm. where he has children um, presented with the dilemma of um, either getting one marshmallow to eat now or getting two if we can wait 15 minutes to eat the second one. So there are all these lovely videos of the kids sitting on their hands, singing songs, looking around the room, doing all kinds of things to distract themselves. So that's an early attentional deployment mechanism. Another one is uh, cognitive change. So you change how you feel about things by changing how you're thinking about the situation, how you're framing the situation. Um, And then the last set of strategies he talks about are um, modulating the response once the emotion is already underway. So, um, you know, taking measures to quell the bodily responses, um, the behaviors that result, the kinds of thoughts and feelings using some of the same kind of strategies he talked about earlier on. Um, so one of the things that was impressive to us in going through literature is the, the vast range of strategies and that it works best when people are flexible about what strategy to use when. So when emotion's really intense, reframing it, thinking about it a different way is often much harder than using more attentional deployment um, distraction kinds of techniques or just um, suppressing the emotional output as a way of altering your response. But it, it, it is hopeful, isn't it? That, uh, there, oh, you know, yes. A lot of strategies the, the, you can the brain, use. The brain studies of emotion regulation show... Um, potent effects of the various strategies and all all operating with a kind of um, top-down control over um, the motion generation mechanisms. So I'm I'm trying to parse out still, and this is, I guess, uh, one of the central questions in terms of what is an emotion, how much is body and how much is mind, or is that a, is that not a good dualism? I mean, the, I, I think one of the things that, you know, this, this has been a process that we've learned a lot from as well, and these are not easy questions, and I think people who are doing research in these areas continue to struggle with, with understanding um, how we develop a scientific uh, study of these processes which have such uh, well-known vernacular uses, right? Um, so the... Um, the idea that, you know, one of the prominent ideas is that what emotions are doing are responsible for detecting and prioritizing sensory stimuli, right? So sort of scanning the world and what's most important to pay attention to and focus your attention on, on that. Emotions are really prioritizing how we should behave. Um, again, many of, much of that is taking place probably at a, um, a subconscious level. But the ultimate reason for doing that is to maintain life, right? Um, in fact, one major researcher uh, talked about uh, emotions as being basic life regulation. Um, life regulation is about the body. It's about the body and the brain. And so I think the idea that is emerging now is that it's, it's really not possible to separate the brain and the body. Um, the brain is regulating our behavior so that we can maintain the, the health of the body. And so basic homeostatic processes in the body are probably where emotions initially derived from, right? Um, so the body is really key. Uh, and I guess behind the question, um, I was thinking about the uh, the experiment with prairie voles. 
Uh-huh. Where prairie, I think prairie voles are monogamous and their neighbors are are not. Are, are, right, yes. <laughs> are, are, I guess you call them polygamous, or, you know. Right, yeah. Uh, hesitate to use that word here in Utah, but... Uh, <laughs> No, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, but but a simple, I don't know, is, is, was this a biological change or, or conditioning uh, change prairie voles from monogamous to polygamous? No, no. It was, a, it was a much more invasive change, actually. They did a gene uh, manipulation, right, um, and basically um, were able to cause the expression of more receptors for a particular um, neurotransmitter or uh, neurohormone. Right, so the the, uh, the study was still very amazing. That simply re- expressing more of a particular kind of receptor in the part of the brain that mediates rewards, and it's receptor for depending on the species, it can be oxytocin or vasopressin, would really change the um, the mating system from a polygonist to um, to a uh, uh, pair bond situation. Interesting, but but it seemed to me that the reaction I had was that this is a pretty simple, you know, a, a change in the, in in the brain, uh-huh. or, you know, and and then the whole lifestyle changes. You know, I, I was I guess I was imprinting or I was transferring that to maybe human behavior. Right. Yeah. No. At, no. It's a, it was a stunning result, really, that such a simple change could have such a profound effect. Yes. So, what do you think that means? That <laughs> well, the hormone involved is, or, or a neurohormone. It acts as a hormone in the body. It also can act as a neurotransmitter-like substance in the brain. Um, mediates bonding, uh, affiliative reactions, and to form a continuous pair bond, obviously there has to be some affiliative behaviors, right? And that's what that hormone mediated. So now there's a possibility of mediating uh, an attachment, right, between the, the two individuals who are mating, which is what's necessary for a monogamous relationship. Hmm. Now, so I'm, I'm, I'm having, I guess it might be an emotional reaction to this conversation <laughs> on emotion, uh, but as we learn more and more, uh, maybe we demystify, and I don't know, is there something yeah. lost there that, that we lose the mystery? I think not. Um, that's something that we actually talked about quite a bit with our students in the course, is that um, it, in fact, adds a whole other level of understanding. So I don't think it takes the mystery away, um, and the uh, there's still um, an enchantment with the idea of emotions, but there's just um, another way of understanding them. And for me, a lot of that was helpful in terms of thinking about anxiety mechanisms. And um, there's a way that that feels that I'm, you know, personally familiar with, but it also is extremely useful to understand what's happening um, in terms of brain mechanisms and cognitive mechanisms. Uh, when I feel anxious and, and I'm able to think about that and label that. So it, I think it, it goes alongside that um, subjective sense of what the emotions are. I don't think it removes it. I think it mm. gives you another layer, another level of understanding. Let's take another break when we come back more with Elizabeth Johnston and Leah Olson, authors of The Feeling Brain, The Biology and Psychology of Emotions. When we come back, I want to explore another one of your fascinating sub-questions uh, on the main question, what is an emotion? And that is, do, do humans all experience the same emotions? Uh, is there differentiation? Is there individual differentiation? Uh, and what does that mean? More following the break. 
Edvard Grieg was 44 years old when he wrote this, at a point in his life when he was, in his words, turning toward wider horizons. It's the Violin Sonata No. 3 by Grieg. We'll hear it from a concert at the Virginia Arts Festival, Music of Wide Horizons, on the next Performance Today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. UPR's business underwriters support the station and expose their products, services, and events to our loyal listeners. Let our listeners know by becoming a UPR program sponsor. For information on underwriting, please call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're uh, tackling the big question, what is an emotion? The book is The Feeling Brain, The Biology and Psychology of Emotions. Elizabeth Johnston and Leah Olson from Sarah Lawrence College are authors, and they join me for this last segment now of the program. You can join us here at 1-800-826-1495. We're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio, and uh, our email is upraxcess at gmail.com. So this question that really struck me, do all humans experience the same emotions? And you could imagine, you know, I think we all probably experience the basic emotions. Fear would be one. Mm -hmm. Do do we all experience the same emotions? Well, it's a question that's really been pursued, um, you know, uh, most by a psychologist named Paul Ekman. And he was looking at emotional expressions and asking the question, do, do we all recognize the same emotional expressions? So would show pictures of people smiling, people frowning, people angry, uh, people fearful, and um, you know, show them to a number of different uh, cultures around the world. And he arrived at the conclusion that although there are variations, it does seem like we all have the ability to recognize all um, facial expressions. This is, a, this is an area, however, that has been long debated, so there are those who would really disagree with that. And it's certainly true that different cultures have different words for some emotional states that we would maybe have a hard time re- um, recognizing. Um, so, for example, in uh, Japan, there is a, 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 a word, amai, which refers to an emotion that has, we have a hard time translating it in, into English. It has to do with the kind of feeling you have when you're dependent on someone. Um, a kind of presumption on somebody else's um, love and attention. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, but, uh, but a study was, since we really don't recognize the word, we don't recognize uh, the uh, emotion explicitly, but when they've done studies to, to really ask English speakers, for example, who are unfamiliar with this word, um, after they're given the definition, they very quickly know exactly when to apply it. So that, again, suggests that even if we have different words uh, in our language to express different emotions, we still seem to be able to understand it. What about individual to individual? You know, if I, if I say I'm yeah. happy, is that uh, maybe I'm experiencing something slightly different than, than you when you say you're happy? Right. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, absolutely. And um, there's studies to looking at individual variation um, that connect uh, emotions with bodily responses. So there's a task that's actually um, 
produces a lot of variation in how people respond to it. It's called the heartbeat detection task. Um, somebody called Hugo Critchley and his colleagues in London did studies on this. And um, basically what uh, the participant has to decide is, um, is the sound that they're hearing in sync with their heartbeat or is it, um, uh, I think, 500 milliseconds behind? Um, so they have to basically judge the synchrony um, of tones with their own heartbeat. And some people are really good at that, and some people are really terrible. There's a mm. big mm -hmm. range of variation at how good people are able to, what's called intercept, which is read their internal signals. Um, and Critchley and his colleagues looked at people's scores on a standard anxiety scale, the Hamilton anxiety scale, and found that they were correlated with how good people were at detecting their own heartbeat. Um, so the more anxious people were better at detecting their own heartbeats. They were more in tune with those bodily signals of the emotion. And this uh, this gets me into, a, I guess, a question you, you probably encountered before is, can science really get at the heart of, of, of an emotion? You know, you, you're, you talk about bodily responses. People can report mm -hmm. what they're saying. You can look at uh, scans of the brain. Can, can you get yeah. to the essence of it? So you're asking what is referred to as the hard question, right? Um, the, uh, the easy question is to be able to see a correlate in brain activity to whatever it is that you're interested in, in looking at an emotion, for example. Um, so we can find that the amygdala, for example, always fires when an individual says that they're afraid, right? So it does seem as if amygdala firing has something to do with the feeling of, of being afraid. Um, however, what you're asking about is the subjective experience itself. Mm -hmm. And obviously, science has no way to get inside your head and have your subjective experience, right? So that no, remains beyond the reach of science, yes. I agree with Leah a little bit there because I think that um, subjective reports can be correlated with objective measures. So that I think that that's one reason that we see this huge um, surge in affective neuroscience with the advent of neuroimaging is that when you have people in the scanner and you can look at the activity in their brains, you can also ask them questions about what they're experiencing. So you, ha you have not direct access to what they're experiencing, but you have a way of relating what they say they're experiencing to right. what's but measured. That's, that's still the easy question. It's still the easy mm. question. Right. <laughs> Leah's right about that, absolutely. Right. Right. We found on this one a few times before. Right. Right. So, yeah. um, but it, it's true. Um, that the the hard question of you know what is this consciousness? Um, how does it relate to other uh, more spiritual aspects? That's really hard. Mm -hmm. Have there, have either of you? I guess I'll ask both of you. What, uh, have there been surprises of you as you've you know gone through your class uh, and, and and now done a survey of this science? Uh, anything specially surprised you? Um, I, you know, I think, I think we were surprised at many things as we began the class. I think, you know, being able to, to for example, separate out what we call emotion from what we call feeling, because in, in the vernacular they're often used synonymously um, with each other. And um, to, to really arrive at a, f a sense that, you, that I feel like I have a handle on what an emotion is, not the subjective experience, but I think I really have a handle on what emotions are as an adaptive function now. 
So in a way, that was surprising to me. I don't think I would have predicted what my understanding of it is now. Hmm. And Oscar, me, yes, the, go ahead. For me, one of the most um, interesting and surprising things was understanding the current work on representation of the body and the brain and how our common use of the word feelings to refer to bodily feelings and emotional feelings and other kinds of feelings like feeling that you know uh, a word but you can't produce it, the tip of the tongue effect. All of these feelings are related in terms of the brain processing mechanisms. And here I'm referring to the work that we cover from Bud Craig on the insula, that hub that's connected to so many other brain areas that, that he describes as the basis for a sentient self. Um, monitoring all of the feelings um, in the body and producing a sense of awareness of the feeling self in time. We just have uh, about three minutes left, and I want to, I've referenced this earlier, so I, I don't want to neglect this, and it's a very interesting uh, story. Uh, in, in the case of the patient, sad story. I wonder, wonder if you tell me about uh, Antonio Damasio and his work with the patient called Elliot. Yes. In fact, I was going to answer that that was another, I think, really surprising um, re surprising thing we learned. Um, what Damasio did um, in, in his work with a patient, Elliot, um, who had suffered a trauma tumor, a tumor actually, to the frontal lobes, um, and he had been tested and tested by psychologists to understand what the deficit uh, a problem was after the tumor had been removed. He seemed every way. In fact, he seemed, he seemed to pass most tests with flying colors, superior, if not um, at least average. Um, and yet he was unable to sort of carry out day-to-day -day activities in a normal way. He was unable to uh, continue his job, for example. Um, and what Damasio finally put together after many, much work and much testing was that the problem that he had was that he was unable to experience emotions, right? And um, without emotions, he was unable to really carry out most of the cognitive decision-making processes that we, for the most part, used to think had no, uh, that emotions had no function in at all. Right, so he showed that emotions are a critical part of all of our decision making processes. Yeah, it was. Yes, go ahead. Integration of cognition emotion theme that we developed throughout the book that it's not as though emotions are um, antithetical to decision making and judgment, but they're necessary for good decision making and judgment. And it's a very interesting connection, maybe just a couple of minutes on this at the end here. Um, uh, interesting connection between emotion and memory. Apparently, uh, emotion yes. helps us select which memories we keep. Exactly. Right. As we mentioned at the beginning, you know, emotions seem to prioritize um, sensory stimuli. And, you know, we, we remember very little of what we experience, right, from, from day to day. But what we do remember... Um, is often what has emotional consequence. Um, one of the ways that's been described in the book is that a highlighter. Emotions highlight what's important, and what's important is what we end up remembering. We uh, Remembering best. Right. And uh, just mentioned passing at the end here, much more to, to be said. But in some cases, um, the, the, the emotion, the, the trauma can restrict memories. We talk about weapon focus if you're a victim of gun crime. Yeah, yeah. Right, it can narrow things too much down onto things that end up 
um, well, they obviously are very important. That's a huge threat, but that you don't encode the other kind of information you might need to identify the perpetrator of the crime. So that has been noticed a lot, that there's this kind of um, very tight focusing or zooming in that emotions provide. Um, so that um, this question of selectivity is essential, but sometimes it can lead you awry, it can lead you into difficulties with processing. And you can think about something like PTSD is the same kind of thing where there's so much emphasis on the triggering cues um, that other things are ignored that are actually different between the situation that somebody's in and, uh, and something like combat or other trauma. Well, very interesting. Uh, you'll have to get the book to, to get the rest of this. Uh, much else to be discussed. We're out of time, though. The Feeling Brain, The Biology and Psychology of Emotions, Elizabeth Johnston and Leah Olson. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk about uh, refugees in Utah and Cache Valley. There's an interesting project from the Library of Congress that will be making its way through uh, Cache Valley. And uh, we'll talk to some uh, refugees who have ended up in uh, Cache Valley tomorrow on the program. Join us then. Thanks for listening today. Advanced placement classes offer college credits to high school students if they do well enough on their AP exams. If you're just plopping these kids into AP courses, they're not going to do well, and you may have to water it down so much that it's not going to really be considered a college-level course. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Question is, how do you get those kids ready? That's next time on Marketplace from APN. Monday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. As with its neighbor, Canyonlands National Park, Arches National Park conceals most of its wildlife from visitors. That said, lizards are easy to spot, as are mule deer in the cool times of the day. And if you spend a little time before breakfast or after dinner, you just might see coyotes, porcupines, desert cottontails, black-tailed jackrabbits, and many songbirds. Because of the high heat during the summer months, most of these animals will be most visible when humans are not typically out and about. Desert animals have a variety of adaptations to deal with the hot weather and aridity. A key adaptation is that most animals are nocturnal, being most active at night. Nocturnal animals in arches include kangaroo rats, wood rats, also called pack rats, and other small desert rodents, skunks, ringtails, foxes, bobcats, mountain lions, bats, and owls. Some desert animals are diurnal, or primarily active during the day. These include rock squirrels, antelope squirrels, chipmunks, lizards, snakes, hawks, and eagles. Many animals are only active in certain temperature ranges, and they alter their active times of day depending upon the season. During winter months, snakes and lizards are in an inactive state of torpor, or sluggishness, or even dormancy. But they become active during the day during the late spring and early fall and then become crepuscular or active mainly during the nighttime hours to avoid the daytime heat of summer. Insects too alter their times of activity. Mosquitoes, as you no doubt know, may be out from dawn through dusk depending on the temperatures, but they're not active after the sun goes down. In spite of Arch's rather inhospitable appearance, almost 50 species of mammals live in the park's landscape. But the hot climate and lack of water favors small animals. Because of their size, these animals are less able to migrate, but have an easier time finding shelter and require less food and water to live. Rodents are numerous. There are 11 species of mice and rats. Desert bighorn sheep are one of the larger mammal species to be seen. They are frequently spotted along Highway 191, 
south of the Park Visitor Center and call Arches home all year long. They roam these talus slopes and side canyons near the Colorado River, forage for plants, and negotiate the steep, rocky terrain with the greatest of ease. While Arches may not be considered a prime bird-watching hotspot, 273 species have been seen in the park, which includes seasonal, year-round residents, and migrants. Much of this diversity is due to the riparian corridors like Courthouse Wash and the Colorado River, which forms the park's southern boundary. Mornings along these corridors often are filled with bird song during spring and summer. You might spot blue grosbeaks, yellow-breasted chats, and spotted towhees. Listen carefully, and you'll hear the trill of the canyon wren echoing from the sandstone walls. Great blue herons hunt the shallows for fish, while Cooper's hawks deftly maneuver through the tangle of trees beyond the riverbanks. There is life in the desert, if you know where, and more importantly, when, to look for it. For National Parks Travelers, this is Patrick Cohn. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Did you know that librarians make a difference in the lives of students? A recent study showed that fewer librarians in schools translated to lower performance or a slower rise in scores on standardized tests, particularly in fourth grade reading scores. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.